Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Having spent a number of weeks looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, there's one further subject I want us to look at before we end this series. Because I just feel that if we don't learn this bit, then all our best efforts in terms of the use of the prophetic gifts will be in vain. In fact, I might go so far as to say that if we were to follow the example of some who turn following God into some mystic sort of treasure hunt, following a series of cryptic clues, the answer of which you have to find to get to your ultimate treasure, which I think is more a New Age influence, then I think we might as well go the full hog and get a bucket of chicken livers, throw them on the floor and see what we can discern from that. You know, the story of Samuel covers an interesting time in the history of Israel. They have finally entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And then they've started to clear the land and to settle. And they then spend a period of time under the leadership of 12 judges. And these are men who were to lead the nation before a king was appointed. It's Samuel who bridges the gap between the times of these judges and the ordination of the first king. It's Samuel who shows us the establishment of the kingdom. And it's an interesting story, but it's written in a totally different style than most of the Old Testament writings. It's almost written like a hero story. It has several strong themes that come out of it. The first is that God is king. He is king over everything. And that no one else can assume any type of kingship or any form of authority except as a deputy to God. Second, we see another strong theme come out, which is what we would call God's providential guidance. The writer to the Romans sums it up well in Romans 8.28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then the third theme that comes through very strongly is God's sovereign will and power. It gets really neatly summed up, if you want to look at it later, in Hannah's song in chapter 2. 
She calls upon him as a God of knowledge, as a sovereign God who can choose or reject people at his absolute sovereign discretion. And that's something we often find it a bit hard to get our heads around. All in all, Samuel is a book well worth reading. I suppose I should say that of all the books, really. But Samuel is one well worth reading. The story starts with a typical picture of an Israelite family. Except that the guy has two wives. And the favourite one of the two, his first wife, as it happens, is childless. And that, for her, is the cause of a lot of unhappiness. Because the second wife, who has managed to have children, takes every opportunity to remind her of the fact. And so this first wife is one day so desperate that when she's in the sanctuary praying, she strikes a bargain with God. She says to him, if you will give me a son, I'll give him up into your service. Now at the time she was there praying, one of the priests was there, a guy called Eli. And he sees her praying, although he doesn't know what it is that she's asked. But he can see how devout she is. So he asks God to grant her request. And guess what? Hannah finds herself pregnant. She gives birth to a son and she names him Samuel. And then Hannah keeps her promise. And there's something, I love the phrase. I love the phrase the Bible uses for this. It says, Hannah kept her promise and lent him to God for the whole of his life. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't you like to be lent to God? And from the description, it seems that what actually happens is that Hannah gives Samuel over to the temple with a vow. And it sounds like it's a Nazarite vow. Now, that's not Nazarene. Okay? Jesus, was a, Jesus was a Nazarene. He grew up in Nazareth. We're talking about Nazarites. They were a strict subgroup of the Jewish community. Um, and, and the reason it looks like it's those sort of vows is it talks about not letting a, a razor near his head. And one of the things that characterised them was that they wouldn't shave their heads. They, they would give up eating anything that came from the vine. They wouldn't go near dead bodies. Those were the sort of vows that were involved in being a Nazarite. Now, as a slight aside, if you think being a Nazarite is for you, not shaving... No grape juice or wine. No dead bodies. Okay. Then there are a few other details you need to read in Leviticus 6. Okay. Because it's not quite as good as it sounds. But Eli is obviously a bit taken aback. And what he seems to be taken aback by is that Hannah is promising literally a baby. It was possible to promise a child, 
to the temple as young as one month old. And it seems like that is what was happening here. And it also seems to take him aback that unlike some who would promise people for a period of time, here is Hannah promising a young child for the whole of his life. She seems to have no intention of buying him back from the temple at some later date. And then we see at the beginning of chapter 2, Hannah's song. And it's great. If you feel down, this is worth reading. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Just listen to it. It lifts your spirits. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. And so Samuel starts serving in the temple. And at the same time as he is starting his service... The sons of this priest, Levi, are seen to be getting more and more ungodly. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 2, what we see is Samuel is growing in God's favour. While the sons of Eli have actually been cut off because of their bad behaviour. And then we get to chapter 3. And this is what it says. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and he said, here I am, 
for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and he said, Here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel a third time. And he arose and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am, you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfil against Eli all I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more if you hide anything from me that he told you. And so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God speaks. It's now some years later. Samuel is a young man. And what we're told is that the word of the Lord was rare. And that there were no frequent visions. This was obviously one of Israel's dry seasons. One of those periods where the prophets were not hearing from God. Where God's presence wasn't with them daily like it had been when they travelled through the wilderness. Somehow God seems remote. There was no, no prophet speaking into the nation. 
and seems that by the wording it was even rare that the word of God was brought to the people. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised when we read that it says that even though he'd been serving in the sanctuary, Samuel did not know the Lord yet. He was serving in the sanctuary, yet he didn't know God. How could it be? I think Samuel, probably like so many people today, knew all about God. He was serving him daily, but he hadn't got to the point of having a personal relationship with him. Even as a priest who'd been set aside to serve God. Because there's a huge difference between knowing all about someone and actually knowing them. You can know all about someone without even meeting them. And that's a mistake we must not make. Because our faith is based on relationship, not on knowledge. Without a living relationship with Jesus, we can't truly call ourselves Christians. And Eli and Samuel were sleeping. And Samuel's woken up by someone calling his name. It's just before dawn. Because the lamps that burn all night in the tent of the meeting, it says, are still alight. And in his half-awake state, Samuel assumes that the voice he hears is Eli's. It's an easy mistake to make, because it says he doesn't know God. He doesn't know what his voice sounds like. And then finding that he was mistaken, he returns to bed. That happens twice more. And so insistent is Samuel that he's heard someone calling him that Eli begins to realise it must be God. So he tells him how to answer if he hears that call again. God calls again and this time he repeats Samuel's name. Samuel, Samuel. Not only does that mean Samuel is sure to hear it, but that repetition carries something of an imperative with it. A note of importance, a note of urgency. And so hearing it, Samuel follows Eli's advice. And he answers, speak, for your servant hears. Having learnt to recognise God's voice, that was the start of a conversation between God and Samuel that established him as a prophet. And we know he was faithful in it because we're told he didn't let any of the words fall to the ground. And as a result, God appeared to him time and time again. Now what I want you to really pick up from this passage is a simple truth. God has a voice that you can learn to recognise. Yeah? And if at first you don't recognise it, he will often repeat his message. Particularly if it's something that is important. Because God knows who he's dealing with. He created us. Samuel didn't recognise God's voice to begin with. 
But with the repeated message, it became more and more insistent. And as we learn to recognise God's voice, what we will realise is we hear it more and more. But with this ability to hear his voice, there comes a responsibility. Not to drop the things he talks to us about. And equally, not to misuse it by adding emphasis or weight to our own ideas and opinions by claiming that God has spoken. Even if it's something difficult, we have a responsibility. Even if it is a real ear tingler, as the passage talks about. I don't know what that was, but it was obviously something that made the people's ears burn. God has a voice that we can learn to recognise. God can be insistent and he will keep calling us if something is important to his purposes. There's another good example of someone who wanted to make sure that they were hearing from God. And that's Gideon. Gideon considered himself to be a nobody really. He was a fairly insignificant member of one of the smallest families in the least clan of one of the tribes of Israel. And what he didn't seem to realise was that being a nobody made him just the sort of person God was likely to choose. So one day he was hiding himself away, just getting on with life, when suddenly he is confronted by the angel of the Lord. And he says to Gideon, you're going to rescue Israel from the Midianites. Gideon obviously isn't all that convinced. So he asks God to prove that it's him speaking. You can read about this in Judges 6 verse 36 onwards and it says then Gideon said to God if you will save Israel by my hand as you've said behold I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor if there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said And then he goes on, because even when that happens, he wasn't quite convinced. Verse 39 onwards, Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and let all the ground, let there be dew. And guess what? The next morning, that's how it was. But notice Gideon's attitude here. He doesn't want to upset God, but he has the need to be absolutely sure that this is the right thing. If he's going to commit himself and commit others to this venture that God has given him, at a potential cost not only of his own life, but of those who join him, he wants to make sure there is no room for mistake. And God seems to understand that. 
And so he goes along with this test and gives Gideon the necessary certainty. And then what you find is Gideon is able to commit to the venture in faith. God wants us to be prepared to step out in faith. But there's more to it than that. He's not looking for us to move into things in presumption or in blind faith. What he wants from us is to be walking with him based on our relationship with him. Listening to his promises, responding to his challenges, taking comfort in his assurances and standing on his word. And moving forward without the degree of assurance that is necessary is one of two things. It's either blind faith or presumption. Blind faith is jumping without really looking at the consequences or what could go wrong on the basis, well, God will catch me. I'm not really going to look at what this could cost me. I'm just going to do it. Presumption is moving forward well aware of the potential cost, but without really having sufficient confidence that God is in things. Just relying on the fact that, well, God wants the best for us, so he will never let us down. You know you're walking in presumption when you say those sort of things. God won't let us down. What you have to remember is this needs to be all about God's will, not ours. So three things so far. God has a voice that we can learn to recognise. He can be insistent and he will keep calling us if it is something important to his purposes. But God will grant you confirmation if you ask, because he wants us to step out in true faith. I then got another example. It's an interesting one to look at. In fact, it's one that never occurred to me until I heard someone talking about it recently. Did you ever think that an interesting way of discerning God's will is to try to resist it? That's what Jonah did. He heard God's voice. You can read about it in Jonah, starts in chapter 1. And, you know, the first couple of verses, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. He'd heard God's words. He knew what they were. The trouble was that what God was asking Jonah to do wasn't something he wanted to do. And then we read in verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah resisted. He ran away. Now, God's reaction was quite obvious. He caused a storm 
to persuade him. And when even that didn't work, Jonah is thrown into the sea, swallowed by a large fish, and then deposited on the beach where he was meant to be going all the time. Now, I am not suggesting that we start being deliberately disobedient to God. But it's an interesting thought that if we need to make sure, if we try to do something different and see that we meet with resistance, that could be an indicator. But we need to be careful. Although we need guidance, sometimes relying on these last two methods, laying down fleeces like Gideon, trying to do the opposite like Jonah, can be turned into some sort of mystical treasure hunt. Following the clues, one by one, seeing where they lead. And that is not a pattern of discerning God's will that I see in scripture. And particularly, if the clues you are following are circumstances, then it's easy to read into them whatever you want to serve your own purpose. So be wary of allowing circumstances to drive your decisions. God has a voice and we can learn to recognise it. He can be insistent. He will grant us confirmation. We can look at what happens when we try to resist. Another interesting account is the narrative of Jonathan and his armour bearer. The story is in brief is that Israel is at war. At this point, it's with the Philistines. The Israelites are camped on one side of a valley and their enemies on the other. They've settled down for the night. And uh, Jonathan turns to the young man who helps him carry his armour. And he says something like this. Why don't we nip over to the enemy camp and see what's happening? You never know. God might just open up an opportunity for us. Now his armour bearer agrees to go along with the idea. In fact he says, if that's what you want to do, I'm your man. And so they creep out of the camp and then they come up with a rough plan. So they head over to the enemy camp. Now, they come over to the enemy camp and they get spotted. And so they end up in some banter with the enemy guards. But out of the way that unfolds, and based on what they had planned beforehand, they rush the camp, two of them. And before you know it, they've killed 20. And in the noise that this has started to generate, the rest of the Israelites then wake up and come over and join in the fun. And before you know it, the whole of the Israelite camp has been scattered. Sometimes, you just have to push a few doors. And see which open. 
I love that attitude of Jonathan. This is what uh, this is what it says. It's in 1 Samuel 14. Come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You know, it almost reminds me of the attitude of those three men that were thrown into the furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar who said our God whom we serve is able to save us but even if he doesn't he's still God it rings of being open to God's will and saying I'm going to give this a shot because I believe it's what God wants me to do and if not I believe God will make it impossible for me Sometimes, to find out what God is talking to us about, we have to try pushing a few doors. I just want to end by talking briefly about some of our experiences, just to put this on a practical note. And the starting point has to be, you know, you have to realise there are some things that God does not worry about. We do not need to look for God's guidance in every area of our lives. Although my wife is concerned about what colour socks I put on in the morning, I don't think God is. She likes to make sure they match what I'm wearing. And she knows that I don't have an eye for that sort of thing. But some things to God are just neutral. He doesn't mind which way we drive to work. He doesn't mind all sorts of things that we just get on with in our daily life. And then above that, there are some things where he's already told us what to do where he's spelt it out clearly and it's in his word. That's what the Bible's for. Because as we read the Bible, we can learn about what he thinks about things. He's told us not to sin. So if you're wondering, should I sin? Should I not sin? You don't need a revelation from God. He's already told you. He's told us to seek the gifts. He's told us to be building a relationship with him. You don't have to ask him specially about that. It's in his word. Some decisions we just have to make based on practical circumstances. But just be open to God, showing us if there is something else he would rather we did. But generally, the starting point for any attempt to find out what God wants us to do 
is to listen. To listen to God. To try and discern his voice. To listen as we worship him. To listen as we read his Bible. As we pray to him. To listen to see what he is saying. And to try and recognise that voice of his. Sometimes it's right to lay a fleece. But let's not get into treasure hunting in that sense. Let's not just follow a series of clues. And sometimes we have to push a few doors. For about a year before we moved to Doncaster, we were pushing a door. It was almost exactly like Jonathan and his armour bearer. We knew we were meant to be going church planting. We'd heard God very specifically on that and we couldn't put that down. We knew we were meant to be doing it. We just didn't know where. And as we talked to others, the advice we were given is, why don't you go to Stoke-on-Trent? Anthony's going to Stoke-on-Trent. Why don't you go with Anthony to Stoke-on-Trent? Because we're wanting to plant five churches in Stoke-on-Trent. Why don't you work with Anthony, get the first church established, and then one of you can go on and plant the next one and the next one and the next one. It seemed like a good idea. It was exactly like Jonathan and the armour bearer. Why don't we just nip over and see if God opens something up? And so we decided... In the absence of anything else, let's give that a shot. I think some of you have heard us tell the tale of how well we got to know the M6, driving up and down for job interviews, which never came to fruition. How well we got to know our estate agents, as despite getting people looking at the house, we never got a sale. Until a year on, we said, God, is it just that it's hard to get to Stoke-on-Trent, or are we pushing the wrong door? And God said to us, you're pushing the wrong door. Perhaps we should have asked earlier. But somehow, I just feel these things happen in God's timing sometimes. And then we had a very clear direction that it was Doncaster. We heard God's voice on it and we were able to say, speak Lord for your servant hears. And within a matter of weeks, I think it was within six weeks, Moena had work here, we had a house, we had a buyer on our house and we were living here. God can do in six weeks what we cannot do in any amount of time in our own strength. What the Bible assures us is that God has a plan for our lives. Just as he sent his disciples out, he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to highlight the word, to lead us on, because he has a plan for us. And we need to surrender ourselves to God. 
to allow ourselves to respond to his prompting. Because if we do that, we will find we live life to the full. That's what scripture promises us. It talks about having life to the full. It's about being ready to go or to stay. It's about being ready to pioneer a new work or to help build the kingdom where you are. It's about being prepared to go near or far. It's about being prepared to speak out on issues or stay quiet. It's about being prepared to pray for healing for people. About being prepared to help those who are in need. About being prepared to give generously when needed. Do you want a life like that? Or are you afraid that he might say that you've got to go to Timbuktu? If you know where Timbuktu is, see me later. Because I don't. But the real question is, are you going to remain passive? Or are you going to become a radical Christian doing whatever God asks of you? I think it's time to allow God to speak into your life. Are you going to give him permission today? I'm not going to do a formal ministry time. I'm just going to say if anyone would like prayer, there's plenty of people that will pray for you this morning. But let's make sure we're making godly decisions on things. Things that serve his purposes. Things that follow his will and his plans for our lives. Amen. Amen. Have a good week. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 